Turb Alpert and the 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, returning to make his weekly Monday appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, uh, as he does when he appears on Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Before he does that, however, he comments to the extent that he is qualified to do so on fatherhood, the reason for Dave Cameron's furlough. Uh, both from the electronic pages of Fangraphs.com and also this podcast, is because he is now a dad. And what Dave uh, Cameron does in part in the audio to follow is he analyzes fatherhood, or uh, at least two weeks of fatherhood, to the extent that it can be analyzed. What else he looks at, however, are the uh, the trade that has sent Ben Zobris and Newell Escobar to the Oakland Athletics, some of the uh, assorted Zips projections, which have uh, occurred most recently, including the Mets, and the Astros, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And also, uh, with regard to those same do- uh, Dodgers, Dave Cameron relates a brief anecdote concerning his correspondence with a person in the game, a person in the baseball game, and that person's feelings about that trade between the Marlins and the Dodgers. You know, when that trade was announced, I was texting with a friend who will probably listen to this podcast at some point, a uh, high podcast listening friend, and uh, when he heard Austin Barnes was in the deal, he uh, dropped an F Andrew Friedman on me. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. You tired? Uh, I'm less tired than Amy because I don't have to do the middle of the night feedings. Oh, or really, yeah. any, I don't do any of the feedings, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how biology works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lucky that for men. <laughs> yeah, being a dad is much easier than being a mom. Yeah. Wow. Oh, what do you got there? Sorry, I was uh, putting away my lunch. Oh, okay. You actually called on time. I normally assume you don't call until like 2.07, so I well, thought I had more time to eat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I apologize for, for my punctuality. It was surprising. Uh, you've been through a lot. Dave, listen, um, we will absolutely uh, touch on some sort of baseball, I suppose, during the course <laughs> of this. Uh, but we have an imbalance in terms of uh, the, the number of baseball events that have happened really even since you uh, have been gone from the site and the amount of, of personal events that have happened in your life. Uh, in that no baseball events have happened? Well, very few. Yeah, I guess we did have a, we did have a trade, uh, this, this, uh, what, this weekend, this past weekend was, was notable. That was good. And we also have, uh, Jung Ho Kong or Kang? I don't know. Where are you going with there? Probably Kong, Kong. I would guess. Yeah. But I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, we'll go with Kong in this, in this, uh, this episode and, uh, I'm sure that, uh, uh we will revise it. Uh, <coughs> but you, uh, what do you, what can you tell us about, about, uh, Having a child, uh, it's hard, yeah. but I don't. I don't know if that's breaking news. No, uh, I don't, yeah. yeah, no, I think uh, you know. Probably a lot of people listening to this podcast have been through the first few weeks of having a kid, and you know, it's what they say. You don't sleep a lot. You don't eat a lot. You um, have a lot of prepared foods. You don't do the dishes. Like you just, you don't really do anything except for you know, try to make sure he stays alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, well, there's both the. Sort of biological instinct to do that, and then also the legal one. 
Yeah, I think we're more concerned with the legal one. To be <laughs> uh, avoiding jail is our top priority at this point. <laughs> and that's good. So yeah. we're we're really just trying to fend off health and human services. Yep, that's uh, smart. <clears throat> uh, uh, here's a, here's a thing about having kids that is curious to me because it seems as though, and I think that the like the model of parenting has changed over say the last fifty years. That's just a that's not a precise number, but that's an estimate. Um, but it, for something that – for an event that so thoroughly uh, changes your life, it's it's strange that it happens to nearly everyone or a huge percentage of the population. Yeah, right. This is not a unique event. Right. But when, it's, when you're going through it though, especially uh, I would guess with the first child, it seems uh, it's it seems like a huge deal. It seems like a unique event. Well, I think it is a huge deal. I mean, it doesn't have to be unique to be huge, right? Like, it's a life-changing, you know, like, my, I'm never going to get to go back to where I was a few weeks ago when I had, you know, free time and uh, the ability to work. Uh, you know, so I think we can have things that are momentous shifts in our life that occur to all of us. And that's what this would be. I yeah, I guess that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what that is. Um, I also think – it seems to me that parenting – the model has changed because we, people have fewer kids, isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, when I was going through my economics classes in school, they talked about the average uh, a, uh, the average number of children essentially is tied to um, farming. Like when when a culture is uh, a subsistence based and is essentially trying to grow their own food or you know create their own stuff, they have a lot of kids because then you have a lot of helpers. And yeah, but those you, are, you're manufacturing employees. Yeah, that's basically it. You have your own assembly line. That's how it works. And then when it, you know you move into like the factory age or the you know the modern age uh, where people kind of go get their own jobs, kids become liabilities instead of assets. Uh, you have to pay for them to go to school, and they're expensive, and they eat a lot of food, and they don't really produce anything. And then when they do produce something, they produce it for themselves, and they don't really help you at all until you maybe get to retirement age, and they pay for your old folks' home or something. Uh, so as the the utility of the kid goes down, so do the number of kids that we're having. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I was, I think I was, this might have been a TED talk, and I, I don't know, I think there's some rigor attached to this research, but that it's also affected because uh, if you have 10 kids and one of them uh, becomes a murderer, then you're like, well, only 10% of my children became murderers. <laughs> and, and it's, and I think that probably as a parent, you don't feel the, you don't feel as though it's necessarily tied directly to your abilities as a parent. But if you have if you have one child and the child grows up to be a murderer, then probably the odds of it are. But also, even even if it is just random, even if it even if that is the ten percent or whatever, uh, you probably feel a lot more responsible as the parent. So in ten years, if my kid becomes a terror and starts bullying others, I need to hurry up and have more kids in order to feel better about myself. Well, it does create a buffer, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems like this is a moral hazard. Like if you have one <laughs> terrible kid, you should have more kids who might be terrible because you'll feel better about yourself if they're not. Well, you terrible. don't know. Like say it. What if it's like the ninth kid? You've already had eight kids before it that came out reasonably well. And you know, well, one... may, maybe not if they had if their brother was a terror. Maybe he was a terror because the first eight weren't as good as you thought. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. It just seems like you could, like, uh, <clears throat> well, the sample size. It's a question of the threshold for sample size. <laughs> it's a law children. of averages, basically, right? You right. keep having enough kids, eventually you're going to have Ted Bundy. Well, well, but or or it's you your parenting skills, your your skills as a parent are 
they are reflected more if you have a lar- if you have a large number of children, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. I think this is true, and I'm kind of maybe an interesting person to talk about this with because my mom is one of thirteen. So, oh, interesting. You know, right. Uh, I, I will certainly be having fewer than my my mother did, uh, and you know, she came from a very large family, uh, and I think you know, in hearing her talk about kind of her upbringing, the, I don't think there's any question that the the size of the family had a direct impact on the quality of the parenting received. Mm. Oh, okay, yeah. No, well, it is in a family that big. I would not be surprised. And of course, I, I had a grandmother who grew up in a family of ten or twelve or something like this, uh, and, and now was on a farm in Iowa. Um, the at a certain point, the oldest siblings are now yeah. raising are the youngest siblings. The parents, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think you know, in hearing um, <clears throat> some of my aunts and uncles talk about kind of their view of of my grandparents, especially my grandfather. You know, I think we talked about the documentary about my grandfather's yeah, murder. Yeah, and yeah. So I, w- I watched that documentary with, I think, nine or ten of my aunts and uncles. And to hear them discuss the ways he treated them, it was interesting that the ones at the, the front, the first few, had a dramatically different experience than the ones at the end because he was essentially a different person by the time he had number 13 than he did when he had number one. He had significantly mellowed his views on life had changed. So essentially the the first few kids had a different dad than the last few kids. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you have that many, just the the time it takes to have 10 plus children means that you're probably going to parent differently uh simply because you'll have changed in those, you know, inner meaning years. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot. Um so you have a uh what I mean so which college is were you thinking about now? Uh, I think probably the cheapest one yeah. would be, would be the, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately for my child, he was born into, uh, someone who puts a significant emphasis on value uh-huh. and, uh, not so much on, uh, prestige. prestige. Yeah. So I, I don't really care too much if he goes to Harvard as long as, you know, he goes somewhere cheap. Well, it's actually in, um, the economics of this. I'm, I assume are interesting. I don't. I know little about them, but I do know that there is a trend among what one might describe as the more prestigious universities. Uh, there is a trend to uh, sort of a uh, uh, tuition amnesty, uh, where like if you, as a family, if you make less than I don't know what what the thresholds are, but seventy five or a hundred thousand uh, dollars, or you know it could be even more than that. Uh, you basically don't have to pay tuition at all. I mean, Carson, we work for Fangraphs. Clearly, we make more than that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, we we are in the upper one percent. Well, I was thinking writers. that you have a wife who's a professional woman, so that you might actually transcend. <laughs> that's uh, true. Yeah. She does she does make more than me, but mm-hmm. she, you know, I think that one of the interesting discussions is you know whether to have someone stay at home and whether I mean she will go back to work initially at least, but you know I don't think she wants to work forever, and it's you know one of those interesting conversations about. You know, do you pay for childcare so someone else can raise your kid, or do you take the income hits so that you can raise your own kid? Eh, I think there's pluses and minuses to both sides. Right, and sometimes it's not an income hit necessarily, depending on what you're making or right. or yeah. in what area you're living. I I remember talking, <laughs> like I think it, um, with regard to Dane at one point, at, at one point when he was working, it was it just became cheaper or yeah. uh, it was a negligible difference for him just to stay home with his kid. Yeah, I mean, we have some friends who, you know, they would make, uh, I don't know, twenty or $30,000 a year in their job, and they were paying, you know, $18,000 a year to a nanny, and they're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. So, How do you avoid uh, uh, – how do you avoid – now, wait, did you read any, uh, like, uh, baby, what do you read, baby books? 
Yeah, I avoided all of those You've on purpose. Like it, essentially, I was a, not afraid, but I uh, I did not want to get to the point where I was raising my kid according to a standard that someone else applied to their kid, thinking it was going to work. Because I, I guess I'm of the opinion that kids are not all the same, and not what works for one is not going to work for all. Like I I mean, you know, as much as I like algorithms and models and formulas, um, I don't know that. Every kid is going to respond to, uh, you know, a parenting by formula the same way. And so I think we decided we're going to, you know, try to respond to our kid the way that we feel is um, best for him. And then if it doesn't work, we will go seek help <laughs> in that in that way. Say what we thought we were going to do isn't working. Let's now go do some research rather than have a whole bunch of ideas ahead of time of like this is how this has to work. And then he comes out and he's not at all like what we thought. Well, what do you do? Or I mean, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, there are no answers to this, but uh, I'm sure you've thought about it. The, because there will be moments, right, where it's a question of whether you're, uh, whether you're allowing, you're giving too much license to the child. That's right. your question, or if you're allowing to express uh, himself, himself, right? It's a boy. Yeah, himself. Yeah, himself. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think there's no question that the kind of the amount of attention he gets is going to be one of the big things we have to keep an eye on. And, you know, we asked in the hospital, we're like, you know, if he's screaming and wants to be held, at what point do we need to just put him down and let him get over it? And they're like, well, early on, you you cannot spoil him too much, hold him as much as he wants to be held. Right. Uh, but there will come a point in the not-too-distant future where we can't hold him 24 hours a day, and uh, he's going to have to just deal. <laughs> like, yeah. so once, once we're sure that he's fed and changed and, you know, doesn't have, like, you know, an outbreak of rabies or something, then he just gets to sit in his crib contentedly or uncontentedly until he calms himself down and realizes that no one is coming to save him and he should just go to sleep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's introducing your child to the fact that the world is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, we want to teach him that we are cruel as quickly as possible. We don't want that to be on his fifth birthday. Like, surprise, you thought we were nice. Now we're mean. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to be mean very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, that's yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of questions to answer, and uh, some of which uh, I guess I guess the idea right is you just you attempt to answer them, knowing that your answer is probably wrong, <laughs> or or not entirely right at least. Yeah, I mean I think going in, one of the things that we've tried to remind ourselves is like we don't actually know what we're doing. We we're totally <laughs> ignorant, and we're you know fumbling around in the dark without a flashlight. So we're gonna try things, and you know we don't want to necessarily respond to sample size of one. But, you know, if we try something a few times and it's not working, let's maybe try something else. And if that works, then let's continue doing that until it doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily always one for just, you know, responding to your own personal experiences. But I think in this case, uh, it's better than trying to take someone else's experiences and apply it to, to your kid. Because I think, you know, children are unique enough that I don't necessarily want to take a one-size-fits-all approach to parenting. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. Uh, any other uh, comments to note on that topic? Uh, I mean, like, I mean, probably a lot, but... Like on the topic of the kid in general or yeah, on the topic yeah. of like my parenting skills? Oh, yeah, any of it. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to read the post I put up an yes, hour ago. Uh, oh, yes, right. I did, yeah. Right. So I think like that that's the thing I've been thinking about is like, uh, you know, how much of fandom is community. And right, you know, like... Um, I think tried to get the idea across in the post. Probably didn't as well as I would have liked to because you know I haven't, uh, I don't have as much time as I used to. So I didn't, yeah. the, the post uh, was a little bit rushed maybe. But in in thinking about 
um, kind of why we're fans and and the community of um, the community aspect of fandom, realizing that like you know there's probably a significant downside to forcing uh, some kind of non geographical fandom on him. Like you know regardless of where we end up living in the future, which I don't know where it will be. I can't imagine moving to, like, say, Philadelphia and not allowing him to be a Phillies fan or mm-hmm. moving to Dallas and not allowing him to be a Rangers fan. It seems to me, and, you know, people can certainly disagree, and I know a lot of people kind of carry the heritage of their family's rooting. I don't know, it seems to me like you kind of want to let them be part of a community, and the best way to do that is maybe to to root for the local team if there is one. Yeah, you do. you do typically find that people... Um, are fans either of uh, the uh, a local team or the team for which some family member or group of family members has cheered for? Yeah. I mean, I think Jeff Sullivan's actually an interesting case, right? Because he grew up in San Diego, but he's a Mariners fan because he had an uncle who was a Mariners fan. And so he essentially adopted the fandom of his uncle. And now even in his mid-20s as a you know grown professional adult, he maintains that uh, fandom. Even while it's his job, which as I noted in the post, mine has waned to a significant degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, maybe if you ever have Jeff on a podcast again, if he didn't light the podcast on fire the last couple of weeks, <laughs> uh, and you, and you are never going to speak to him again, he might be an interesting person to talk to about it, of like adopting fandom in a non, uh, location based way. Right. Yeah. Well, it's certainly uh, finding some sort of pretense, which makes it most meaningful, I guess, is the idea. Or, you yeah. know, is, 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 that's typically how it, how it forms, I guess. I think in writing the post, I realized that I was essentially rationalizing something that is inherently somewhat irrational. I mean, I think there is a rational basis in fandom and in the community aspect and in wanting to feel like you're a part of something and kind of, uh, you know, giving yourself uh, an outlet for enjoyment. Um, but, you know, that, I don't think there's any question that there's um, something slightly irrational about cheering for someone who you don't know, to do something that the outcome doesn't necessarily affect you in any way and that you have no control over and allowing that to affect your emotions, right? Like, uh, if we were completely rational beings, we'd be like, whatever that guy over there does doesn't have any bearing on me whatsoever unless it involves me and, you know, him running 50 yards down the field or, you know, hitting a baseball 400 feet doesn't involve me unless I choose to and to choose to let it, essentially. Uh, but I right. do think... Yeah, well, it's like an opportunity. It's like a, it, it's emotional gambling, essentially. You're like yeah. th- this part of me, I'm willing to put down, right? Uh, b- because I I hope not only because I hope I'll get a return on it, but I think that I mean this is probably true of gambling, at least the healthier forms of gambling. Just the the experience of contending with chance and uh, and the unknown has a certain pleasure in uh, in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, it gives you hope even if it's often shattered, right? Like, you always have hope even if it, you know, even if you're a Cubs fan or a Mets fan and it's never actually paid off or <laughs> hasn't paid off in a very long time, uh, you know, you still get to experience that hope until it's crushed. And so you say, okay, well, this is worth the gamble of, you know, uh, taking, you know, some negative emotion uh, when it goes badly for the just the opportunity to hold on to the thought that it might not go badly. Right. Now, do people uh, – you live in Winston-Salem. Do people there have natural baseball affiliations? I, I mean, you know, I think more – like so there's not, there's not a majority, but there's probably a plurality of Braves fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say if you were to, like, poll all of the baseball fans in the city, it's probably, like, 
30% Braves fans and 70% the other 29 teams. Okay. Uh, maybe then you'd have like Yankees and Red Sox disproportionately represented just because there's, you know, more of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would assume it's probably more Braves fans than anything else because they are the closest team. Uh, but it's certainly not Braves country. I mean, you know, you don't see Atlanta jerseys walking around. You don't have, uh, you know, sports bars showing Braves games. Like, uh, I would say it's kind of a no man's land that leans slightly toward the Braves over anyone else. Right. And so, wait, wait, what fills that, uh, I guess what fills that gap? Um, is it, is it basketball? Is it, is it, uh, ACC basketball or is it the, the Carolina Panthers? Yeah, college basketball. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, I think, you know, this is definitely, uh, yeah, I mean, Wake Forest is a, you know, here, so people will root for them, but they're not good anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of Duke and Carolina, uh, with some NC State people mixed in based on where they went to school. Um, or, you know, just generally everyone hating Duke. So if you didn't go to any of those, you just root against Duke. Root against Duke. Um, yeah. so yeah, but it's college basketball is the big thing here, probably. Yeah. Hey, uh, you did, you did mention, uh, you did mention the Mets. The, of course, the Zips projections came out for the Mets today, and I saw you comment on them. Um, uh, as far as a team goes, it's, uh, it's maybe the best they've been for a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it depends, because we don't know what the roster's gonna be yet, right? Like, this is kind of the thing, is you can look at it and you can create some scenarios where the Mets could actually be decent. Like, if they can get rid of Dylan G and make sure he's not blocking someone who's better, because I think he's, what, their ninth or tenth best starting pitcher at this point. Mm. Uh, and if, you know, they find someone to take Bartolo Colon, so then they can give innings to Noah Syndergaard or Rafael Montero or, um, you know, Steve Metz or, yeah, right. uh, Matt, you know, Matz. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah. Eh, you know, there's a, there's some interesting pitchers who are under the radar who Zips likes quite a bit, uh, but they're blocked by a bunch of guys who are old and have their jobs at the moment. So uh, you can squint and say, if the young kids play as well as Zips thinks the young kids could play, uh, and Wilmer Flores is not a disaster at shortstop, you know, maybe this is an okay team. But if Wilmer Flores is a disaster at shortstop and, you know, they keep Cologne and they can't find anyone to get G and the kids hang out in AAA, it's probably not a very good team until the trade deadline when they get rid of the old guys. Juan Lagares is a curious. I, I, I think Jeff Sullivan has written more than one post on Juan Lagares. Yeah, probably like twenty. Yeah, he is a he is a an interesting. I mean, to the point now where um, defense is showing up in a pretty considerable way in his uh, his projections. I think Steamer yeah. has him at plus fourteen. I think that Zips also has him at plus fourteen. Yeah. Had <clears throat> was that a fact? Did everybody know beforehand that this was going to be the case with Juan Lagares? No, I think he's one of those guys that kind of shows that, um, you know, sometimes, not that scouts miss, but that there's defensive value that isn't just obviously tied up in speed, which is usually the easiest thing to identify. Like, we can say, like, Billy Hamilton's probably a really good defensive outfielder, even as a bad defensive shortstop, because he's just so fast, and they moved him center field, and he was. And it was like, yep, this just makes sense. He's that fast, he covers a lot of ground. Ligaris, I think, first started getting re- recognition for his arm, because when he came up uh, a couple of years ago and the Mets stuck him in center field, he had like what, nine or ten outfield assists in the span of like a month or six yeah, weeks right. or something. Like yeah, He just started throwing everybody out, and people were like, man, look at this guy throw, and then all of a sudden we figured out, well, maybe he doesn't have such a great arm. He's just playing crazy shallow because he's got crazy range, and he can play that shallow and still run down everything. So he's throwing people out because of his positioning, not necessarily just because of his pure arm strength, and then... From there, I think we realized, like, meh, maybe this guy really is an elite defensive outfielder based on range in a way that we found it through his arm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and 
and he's not uh he does not appear to be exceptionally fast especially relative to other center fielders right he's a he's a reaction guy kind of you know like a little bit of franklin gutierrez uh right. you know some other guys who you know were lauded as yeah this guy can play center field you know he's going to be a good fielder but not necessarily you know uh, Michael Bourne or Jacoby Ellsbury, one of these guys who was hyped as a, like an elite defender coming through the minors. Uh, and then he gets to the majors, we're like, oh, yeah, he's got some, some defensive skills that probably transcend his physical, uh, his obvious physical tools. There does not seem to be a real answer yet as to how to identify, uh, those, what, whether it's, uh, I, su- I assume it's a combination of, we call them instincts, yeah. uh, and maybe it's, has something to do with, um, I, it might be related to eyesight somehow. Yeah. Um, because you, or, or, or a certain type of like a, like a spatial intelligence, you understand just intuitively where a ball is likely to end up based off of its, you know, the sort of contact that's being made. But it doesn't seem as though there's a truly effective way to diagnose that yet. Yeah. It seems like, um, this is the kind of thing that we would need some some data that doesn't exist for. Like mm-hmm. maybe Statcast will help us get at it better, but even then, you're basically just gonna be judging the results of a guy's reaction time and not necessarily the cause of it. Like you're still saying, okay, we can identify that this guy does get a good first step, but why he gets a good first step is still a little bit of an unknown. Uh, I think you know, there's you could make an argument that reaction time would be mostly about vision. Uh, like how well can you read the angle of the ball in order to decide which way to start running, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not just that you see the ball, but you, you can interpret in your mind where that ball is going so that you can already start running that direction. Uh, or maybe it's just a processing issue. Like maybe everyone sees the ball off the bat at the same speed, but some people just their brains more quickly say, this ball's going there, and someone just takes a little bit longer to come to that conclusion. Right, and that, that has to <clears> – that happens in your – in your brain, I mean, you would have to understand, or perhaps there are tests that could sort of, uh, if not duplicate, at least approximate that that sort of process or attempting to engage that process in a player. But it's not, again, it doesn't seem very easy. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've seen uh, demonstrations at like the Sabre seminar in Boston where um, some neuroscientists essentially hook people up to kind of brain sensors and they'll, uh, you know, show them different images and ask them to react to those images, even in like baseball settings where like they'll show them a strike zone and try to decide if the pitch is going to be a ball or a strike based on, uh, kind of where the, the image was, uh, in relation to the borders they're given and try to get them to decide, you know, swing or not swing or, uh, and you know, there are ways to measure their kind of their reaction and how well they, how accurate they are, um, kind of assessing that and how quickly they can make that assessment. But to take major league players or the kinds of players who would make major league baseball eventually at least, uh, and give them a comprehensive test, uh, and then follow them and see, you know, we need to know if this is the thing that ages. Does it peak early? Does it peak late? Like there's so much to know that you would have to be able to run these tests on a huge number of people frequently, uh, you know, daytime, nighttime, all kinds of variables it would require a huge buy-in from Major League Baseball to get the kinds of data that we need to make real strong conclusions about, you know, whether we can identify this ahead of time. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to use the zips just as a sort of uh, an entree for a little bit of this discussion uh, because uh, last week we looked at the, uh, the zips were released for Houston Astros. Um, Astros do not appear 
to be fantastic yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Better, probably better than last year. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, they were okay last year. They won 75 games or something. So right. Yeah. Yeah. And lar- better lar- than last year would be a good improvement for them. Largely due to, it would seem largely due to their pitching staff. And um, Jose Altuve. Right. And Jose Altuve, uh, who's pro- who probably, I mean, just because this is, because reg- regression is a thing that exists, likely not the same Altuve this year, but still the, he appears, uh, it's a probability suggests he'll be the best player on the team. Yeah, um, by default. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, uh, so a thing that they did last year though, is I, lo- I look back at it going into last year, um, uh, Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh were projected for, I think, negative 0.2 wins <laughs> together. And this year it's like, uh, about six. Together. Yeah, they, they got better. Yes, they did get better. And yeah. <laughs> is that, uh, I, I guess that that's the sort of, uh, and, and the Astros probably of any club have been the least shy about entering this sort of phase, but that's the sort of I guess what that's the benefit of essentially announcing, making it very clear that you're tanking the season or not tanking it, but you're you're using it toward the ends of finding finding situations like this where players are somehow better uh, than than they were otherwise thought to be. Yeah, I mean, when you're not trying to win, you can take on more variance. I think that's the easiest way to think of it is, like, when you're trying to contend, you need to minimize your outcomes. You need to, like, have a very narrow band, or at least as narrow as you can. And is that uh, the justification for signing a free agent, for example? Yeah, Even, essentially, right. Yeah. Veterans have more information. You know, you you have a guy who might not be great, but he's not going to be terrible, or he's less likely to be terrible, at least. Uh, you know, barring an injury, you kind of have a decent idea of what this guy is going to be. So, you know, you choose, you take the known over the unknown, even if it's a uh, less upside, you know, less reward, because you don't want the floor of a guy who's just absolutely terrible dragging you down. Uh, I think we've seen the A's do a, a pretty good job of this over the last couple of years, um, as you and I think Jeff have written, kind of eliminating the 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 floor or making it so their Uh-oh. floor is pretty high. Uh oh, Drew has made his first <laughs> podcast appearance. Maybe uh, uh, maybe I'll switch rooms. Let's uh, let's see how the basement does. Okay. The uh, no no liberty yet though. Yeah, she's at daycare today. We have uh, we we we're still trying to figure out the um, easiest way to take care of dog and kid. Yeah. And so far, it seems to be much cheaper to have someone take care of your dog. <laughs> yes, it's true. Well, the stakes, the stakes, uh, while still quite high, uh, are not quite as high. Uh, with with the dog. With a dog, yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. They're harder to kill. Or, <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they can run away from you. I mean, you know. It's yeah. Like, well, you, you could also leave them alone. That's the other thing. Yeah. You're allowed right, to leave yeah, them you, at your you, house alone. You can put them in your corner and just, you know, give them food and water and walk away. Uh, I think if we did that with a kid, that's getting back to the legal implications we talked right. about earlier. Right. Um, uh, what are so, we talking about? Well, Colin a good, is good now. So a good team, a good team can't oh, right. doesn't really have the opportunity. At least to, to to test at the major league level whether Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh are that good. They do, but they have less. They have, or I guess they have fewer of those opportunities, right? So um, it's not that a contending team can't ever take a shot on those guys, but they can only take a shot on maybe one or two guys. Like you can say, okay, you know, maybe you're the Detroit Tigers and you say we're gonna, you know, try Jose Iglesias or we're gonna try whatever Andy Dirks or someone like, and you say, you know, we're gonna have one of these guys. Uh, if you're the Astros, you can have 24 of those guys, basically, or 23 of those guys, and just throw a whole lot of spaghetti at the wall. And, say, and then Scott Feldman? You know, is Scott Feldman the other one? 
Well, they paid a lot of money for Scott Feldman. <laughs> You're right. Feldman's the one that they were paying for some certainty, right? right. Like, and I guess Dexter had... Fowler last year was... Yeah, right. I mean, no team wants to have zero of these guys. Like, everyone wants to have at least a couple guys that, like, you know, when he pitches or when he's hitting, we have some some confidence that this is going to go fairly well for us. Um, but you can you have a lot of roster spots that you can kind of spaghetti, and, and I think that's what the Astros have done. They didn't know Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh. We're going to be awesome. They got like nine guys, and these were the two who floated to the surface. All right. Uh, and let's see. Another uh, club. We'll, we'll we'll do the Dodgers, and then we'll just uh, discuss some of the the trades and the signings briefly, and then we'll let you go. Uh, but the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, are a baseball team. Uh, the projections for them were also released this past week, and I guess a lot of things confirmed. One thing that I brought up with Jeff, and I'm curious for your thoughts on it too, the fact that both. Um, well, let's see. I don't think D. Gordon's Zips projection has been released yet. However, uh, the the uh, Zips projections for Austin Barnes and Enrique Hernandez, who were part of the trade, not even the biggest part of the trade, sent to uh, or part of the package sent to the Dodgers in exchange for Dan Heron and D. Gordon. Uh, they're both they both have received projections of two wins or greater, yeah. whereas a steamer projects. Uh, D. Gordon for one win in something like, you know, some hugely full season projection, like 660 plate appearances. Yeah. The projections hate D. Gordon and love that trade for the Dodgers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, uh, you know, when that trade was announced, I was texting with a friend who will probably listen to this podcast at some point. Uh, hi, podcast listening friend. And uh, when he heard Austin Barnes was in the deal, he uh, dropped an F Andrew Friedman on me because he was so frustrated that Friedman was able to make this deal. Not necessarily just because, like, oh, you know, they were able to, you know, turn a player who wasn't very good into a player who was, you know, much better, uh, but because guys like Barnes are um, these kinds of, you know, freely available talents or low-cost available talents that can sometimes turn into pretty useful players, that when you put those guys on a team with a $250 million payroll, that team becomes pretty hard to beat because they're already going to be able to buy a whole bunch of Clayton Kershaw's and Zach Greinke's and, uh, you know, good expensive players. So if they're also having the Austin Barnes of the world, they're going to have a good roster. Yeah, and, her, and well, of course, Barnes is interesting because he can catch and play second base. Yeah. Uh, and that's a that's an interesting skill set. And then uh, Henrique Hernandez um, – is uh he's he's also again I don't think he's ever been beloved I don't think he's ever been a darling of the scouts but he seems to have all of the uh the skills that would allow him to be a perfectly competent baseball player. Yeah, I mean these are some more of these kind of like high floor type prospects where you know they they might not ever become stars probably won't ever become stars but you know what if they're useful bench pieces or solid role players for a couple of years. There's value in not having to spend five or six or seven million dollars on their veteran equivalent. Uh, and so if you can develop some of these guys into, you know, your 22nd best player or something, uh, you can save millions of dollars here and there by having these kinds of guys, and they cost very little to acquire usually, and then you can allocate your millions of dollars to keep Clayton Kershaw or to, you know, sign Yasiel Puig and Hyunjin Ryu and all the things that the Dodgers can do. Um, you know, these small little moves, they do add up if you make enough of them. Right. Or so, or just uh, test out what's going on with Brett Anderson. Yeah, guess, right. right. When you ha- when you have depth, you can play with things, and I think that's one of the things that is a little bit scary about the Dodgers is they not only have a lot of high end talent now, which they've had for quite a while, um, but under Ned Coletti, they their their back end of their roster was awful. I mean, their bullpen was terrible, their bench was bad. They, this was, uh, I guess, not last year. The bench was actually excellent, but you know, in most years, they have not had depth. 
Uh, now the Dodgers have done a really good job of stockpiling one through twenty-five, a very good roster. Yeah, yeah. Or one through thirty-two, probably. They would appear to be. Uh, they would appear to be strong. Uh, and uh, okay, yes. The um, uh, I just really want. Yeah, that was mostly just to mention Austin Barnes. Uh, <laughs> that was a, a long way to go to get to Austin Barnes. <laughs> uh, hey, the uh, a trade, a trade over the weekend, uh, a trade, a real trade uh, involving. Well, we have uh, Ben Zobrist and Yunel Escobar now going to Oakland. It, it did some. It some. I mean, the, the starters there. They appeared most likely before that to be uh, Marcus Semien and uh, and Eric Sogard. Eric Sogard, right? And yeah. now they're replaced. And now the Rays are the ones with the new infield. They have some combination of probably Estrubel Cabrera and Nick Franklin. Well, first yeah, of all, Logan Forsyth mixed in there as well. Right. First of all, who do you think? Because Franklin has played less shortstop at the major league. Well, he's done everything less than Cabrera at the major league level. It does appear as though he does not even have his defensive reputation, I should say, or his likelihood of playing shortstop has uh, declined more quickly than Cabrera's did. But they're at a similar place now, maybe. Who is going to be the shortstop there? My guess is Cabrera is probably going to end up playing shortstop, and I wouldn't be terribly shocked if the Rays signed Cabrera with uh, a bit of a uh, no, knowing that Zobrist was going to get traded, uh, and probably Escobar in the same deal. So, you know, I think when Cabrera signed for, what, $7.5 million, people were like, man, what a steal for the Rays. Everyone else in baseball wanted Cabrera to play second base. Maybe Cabrera really likes playing shortstop, and he took less money from the Rays because he knew they were going to give him shortstop, and they just told him, like, hey, you know, wait a week or two. We're going to trade Escobar and Zobrist away, and you're going to be a starting shortstop. Uh, you know, take the second year off the table, and you can have your shortstop gig. I think from Cabrera's uh, perspective, if he likes playing shortstop, which he's expressed before, or if he wants to prove that he still can play shortstop, uh, moving off of second base uh, is going to limit his financial future. Or, you know, if he agreed to play second base for some other team, say he'd signed with the A's instead, uh, he probably never would have gone back to shortstop, and second baseman get paid less than shortstop. So, you know, from Cabrera's perspective, I wouldn't be too surprised if there was already something of an agreement in place that he took less money in order to get a chance to prove that he can still play shortstop at the major league level, whether he can or not. Uh, There did appear to be an air of inevitability, um, especially to Ben Zobrist being included in a trade. Is that just as simple as he's entering the last season of his contract and he's on Tampa Bay? Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent we're probably not going to see too many more instances like Carl Crawford where they let a, you know, high impact player walk in free agency for just a draft pick. Um, you know, I think once they decided they were trading David Price, you could make a pretty good case that, okay, you've taken a far enough step back that you're probably, you're not totally building for the future, but you've not prioritized 2015 anymore. Uh, it probably makes more sense to, you know, get the stronger return for the future and try to sneak into a wild card spot, which I think is what the Rays are basically aiming for. Uh, they're certainly not punting, and I think, you know, as they see, like, the inclusion of John Jaso and Drew Smiley and Nick Franklin, some of the guys they've aimed for in these trades, they're not giving up on 2015. Uh, but they're not willing to push in so far as to let a, a high-quality all-star player walk for just a draft pick in return. All right. Um, and let's see, who else do we have? Uh, oh, we have uh, Kong to talk about. Kong, four-year, a four-year contract, is that right? Yeah, that's what's been reported, yeah. Uh, it, there's, there's a, it, it's difficult, I suppose, uh, to know precisely – well, it's impossible to know precisely what he's going to do. Uh, it, it's there. There is a bit of uh, translation that, occur, that has to occur from the um, Korean League because 
seems to have been offense heavy at least this past year. I don't know if that's historically the case. Uh, uh, insofar as Kong hit 40 home runs, which is well, that, that's probably more or at least as many as anybody in the major leagues at this past year. Yeah, I'm in top 40. Yeah. Uh, didn't Nelson Cruz hit like 42 or something? Yeah, all right. So, but but not many people. Yeah, very um, few. Yeah. And uh, so what do we know about the translations from the uh, from the KBO to the MLB? Well, I think historically the translations have uh, been less than they will be from this last year because the Korean league offense went through the roof. Uh, it was a significantly higher offensive league last year than it was in prior years. So if you um, kind of do like an OPS plus kind of thing or a you know WRC plus uh, for the Korean league, uh, his his offensive surge in 2014 will look muted because some of that was just league league effects and league environment. Um, but overall, I think uh, the Korean league is definitely a step or several steps below the Japanese leagues. Um, it's it's not on the level of the NPB, and we've seen historically that you know power hitting has not translated super well from the NPB to Major League Baseball. So I think there's a reason that um, you know the Pirates only had to pay five million dollars for for Kong's rights is because uh, very few people think the power is going to translate. Right. Uh, but but we we also have to think it's not going to be zero. And if if we if there's a world in which he has even average power and also can play shortstop, that appears to be a valuable player. Yeah, but I don't think he, anyone thinks. I mean, he might have average power or a shortstop, but like league average power. Now you're talking about like you know Johnny Peralta or something. Like I don't, there aren't too many people that I know that think he's going to hit for that kind of power in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and even his ability to play shortstop is in question. I mean, if he's a Second baseman who could fake it at shortstop, kind of, you know, maybe, uh, like it does Drupal Cabrera, for instance, and he has his Drupal Cabrera's power. Well, you know, his Drupal Cabrera got $8 million on a one year deal this winter. Yeah. One year deal. Or Jed Lowry. I mean, you know, like this is probably more Kong's upside, right? Is a player along these lines who has, you know, more power than the average shortstop, but is underpowered for a corner player, uh, and not a great defender. These guys are, you know, Costing somewhere between eight ten million dollars a year, um, you know, including the posting fee, it sounds like Kong is going to be somewhere in that range as well. Okay. All right. Hey, you did it, Dave Cameron. First one back. Yeah. Thanks. You feel good? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, good. Glad we could facilitate that for you. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. No problem. That has been Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of uh, not just Fangraphs.com but also a Sun now. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm the managing editor of my son. That's probably my wife. Yeah, all right. Well, whatever you are. Maybe you are a, 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 a well, what is it? A, man, uh, what sort of editor would, would that be? Uh, associate. Associate editor. Yeah. 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 Vice editor. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm lackey. That's probably a better term. <laughs> that, that, all Dave Cameron is all those things. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.